You're listening to the Assembly Call IU podcast and postgame show. The place where Indiana fans across the globe hang out online after every IU basketball game. We go live as soon as every IU game ends, celebrating with you after wins and commiserating with you after losses, all the while providing instant reaction and analysis with our veteran crew that has been breaking down IU games together since 2011. And we invite you to be part of the discussion too with our moderated live chat that runs alongside the post-game show. Bookmark the URL assemblycall.com slash live and join us right after the final buzzer sounds. That's assemblycall.com slash live. That is how you're a champion. It really is. And now get ready for another brand new edition of the Assembly Call. Welcome, Hoosier fans, to another special off-season edition of the Assembly Call. I am your host, Jared Morris. Very excited to be joining you tonight uh, for this special edition episode of the Assembly Call. We have a really, really fun program for you. Uh, we're going to talk about Indiana's schedule. We've had a few questions about that, and so we want to dive into that. And then we're going to be starting a new series that we're really excited about, over the course of the next few episodes, we're going to try and finish it this offseason, but it may span into next offseason, too. But we're going to be going through every jersey number in IU history and debating who is the greatest Hoosier ever to wear that jersey number. Uh, already, if you follow me on Twitter, you know there's been a debate raging all day on Twitter about one of the numbers that we're going to go through tonight. And so we are going to try and provide kind of the definitive answer, the definitive opinion on it. There's going to be three of us here, assuming that Ryan shows up. We believe that he will. Uh, but there will be three of us here, so we'll be able to cast uh, tie-breaking votes and see if we can determine the greatest Hoosier to wear each of these numbers. So it should be a really fun show. We encourage your uh, uh, contributions. We encourage your discussion. We have the live chat going at assemblycall.com slash live, so join us over there. Uh, we hope that you will uh, participate because it's always fun when you do. So with that said, let's begin, as we always do, go around the horn real quick for some opening statements. And I will begin with tonight's Hoosier Proud banner moment. And the banner moment for me actually came last week when James Blackman Jr. was given a clean bill of health from Tom Crean. Uh, he is 100%. He is ready to participate in full basketball activity. Now, obviously, it remains to be seen. If he has made a full, full recovery, you know, if he has the same explosion, if he has the same quickness, all of that, we won't know until the season starts. But the fact that he is cleared for basketball activities and is 100% is a huge boon for this Indiana team. Because as I've said, and as I said in last week's Six Banner Saturday, uh, which I hope that you're getting our Six Banner Saturday news roundups, go to assemblycall.com slash join if you are not. But as I said, he is the most essential X factor for this team because we know Indiana will have power down low with Thomas Bryant. We know that we have the defensive Swiss Army knives and OG Ananobi and Jawan Morgan and steady guys in the backcourt like Robert Johnson. But what this Indiana team will need this year is a guy who can shoot and a guy who can create offense. 
especially with Yogi Ferrell being gone. And James Blackman Jr. is that guy. So he needs to be back fully healthy. And the fact that he is on track is absolutely a great sign for the 2016-17 Indiana Hoosiers. Now, you may be wondering why I called it the Hoosier Proud banner moment. Well, we have a sponsor for the banner moment this year, and we are extremely excited about working with them. And it is Hoosier Proud. HoosierProud.com is the website. You may have seen their T-shirt going viral a couple of weeks ago. It says the kick is good on it and obviously is a reference to Griffin Oaks kick. Uh, in the bowl game last year that was good but was not counted as good. It was a brilliant shirt. Tons of people bought it in the lead-up to the start of the football season. Uh, and I actually reached out to Connor, who runs Hoosier Proud. We started talking. We realized that it is a perfect fit uh, between our site and between what they're doing. And they will actually become the official producers of the Assembly Call t-shirts. They're not ready yet, but they will be soon, and we'll let you know when. Uh, but in the meantime, you can go to HoosierProud.com and you can get that Kick is Good t-shirt or you can get the, the my favorite shirt over there, which is the white outline of the state of Indiana. They've got it on several different color shirts. I love it. I bought one for myself. Also bought one for my brother for his birthday. And if you use the promo code assembly, A-S-S-E-M-B-L-Y, you will get 15% off your shirt for being an Assembly Call listener. So again, that is Hoosier Proud. You'll be hearing the Hoosier Proud banner moment on all of our episodes of the Assembly Call this year. We're really, really excited to work with them, uh, and so we hope that you will support them. It's uh, uh, the, the company's based in Bloomington. Uh, uh, it, was, it was launched in Bloomington, and so uh, we're certainly proud to be working with them. Very excited to do so this year. All right, with that said, let's go over to Andy Bottoms and get his bottoms line. Well, at the risk of turning this into a, a further testimonial about the uh, the folks at Hoosier Proud, I did order one of the uh, Kick Was Good shirts. Quick shipping, um, reasonably priced shipping. Uh, got it and was able to wear it. I was in Bloomington last week doing some uh, recruiting for work. So I uh, got to wear it there. got to be in Bloomington and uh, go by Assembly Hall and see how things were looking there. So it was a good good visit all around. Got to catch up with Will and uh, and Galen and Chronic Hoosier. So it was a good uh, good time all around. Um, other than that, just kind of, we're getting to the time of year where, you know, little signs point that we're getting a little bit closer toward, uh, toward the season. So some of the preview magazines are coming out of which I always tell myself each year that I'm not going to end up buying all of them. And then I proceed to do so. Uh, so I've got one so far, I'm sure as I see others out there, uh, I'll pick those up the date for, uh, who's your stereo set. So, uh, you know, just more of those signs of the season is getting close, but we've got some fun off season stuff to talk about, like Jared said, and, uh, looking forward to getting back together and, uh, talking a little IU basketball. All right, Ryan, uh, do you have a rant that is not related to USC or the San Diego chargers? No, no, I don't. Uh, okay, if you want to, if you want to read, if you want to read any of those, go over to the big It's been a recurring <laughs> theme. Uh, first of all, I've kind of forgotten how to do this. How are we like, am I, everything everything okay it's been a couple weeks dude months. you look great and your background you've got your diploma back there which certainly flies in the face of everybody who assumes that you never got your diploma so that's good that you have i know I, I owe jared 20 bucks i lost that bet that's a shame. seriously my parents i think they paid for that frame and i still don't think they think i got it <laughs> my indiana wall behind me in the new i love apartment. it you are uh, ready for the season man yeah you know uh, i've also got you know when i change gears and do any broadcasts for the for for my web, for the website i i um have a randy jones bobblehead doll from the padres so very nice uh, that's yeah that's that i gotta switch gears also have the book right here available from all your uh best uh 
<clears throat> uh, online retailers. Um, yeah, I, I just think that as far as, uh, uh, you know, uh, I guess my little opening here, it's not really an angry rant or anything. I'm just I'm just excited that all the guys got on campus. Everybody's in and everybody's working out and getting ready for the season. Uh, there was some speculation for a while. Deron Davis was delayed for whatever reason, but he's there now and he's working out. As you said, James Blackman, clean bill of health. Uh, that's a, a positive. You know, we don't know how that's going to pan out uh, as far as, you know, being fully back, it's going to take him a while to trust that knee. Hopefully he's, he's already there. Um, but Hey, also IU football's two and O maybe the worst two and O team in the country, but Hey, they're two and O and the soccer team's undefeated. So everything's going great right now. There's really nothing to be angry about and kind of puts me out of my place. I don't know. Very nice. Hey, we like it when there's nothing to be angry about. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. All right, so we're going to dive in here, and we're going to talk a little bit about Indiana's schedule, and then we're going to get in talking about the numbers. Uh, just wait till we get to the debate for number two. I've been going over it all day. I still can't decide who I think uh, is the greatest Hoosier ever to wear number two, so we'll see if Andy or Ryan uh, has any great insight there. But real quick before we do that, we want to mention our other sponsor, SeatGeek. They are back for season number two. Uh, and so we really appreciate all of you who supported SeatGeek, who used our promo code, because that's how they know that it worked. And that's why they wanted to, to work with us again. So we really appreciate you doing that. Um, and, and we hope that you enjoyed your experience there, because we know that buying tickets online for sports and concerts has really been a confusing process for a long time. It's, it's hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to. And none of the older ticket sites really want to change that. But SeatGeek is different, which is why I use them, which is why Andy and Ryan use them. And they've come along and created this amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. And that's why it's the first place I go to, like I did this summer when I needed to buy some baseball tickets, went to SeatGeek. It worked perfectly. And what I love about it is they do all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. They do the work. You save the money. And the best part, of course, as our longtime listeners know, is that you get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase because you're an Assembly Call listener. And here's how that works. Download the SeatGeek app or go to the SeatGeek website, go to the settings tab and add a promo code and add the promo code ASSEMBLY, A-S-S-E-M-B-L-Y, the same promo code that you use over at HoosierProud.com. Use that promo code and SeatGeek will send you a $20 rebate after your first ticket purchase. So again, Download the SeatGeek app, get the, the easiest and the best ticket buying experience that there is. Use the promo code assembly, A-S-S-E-M-B-L-Y, and get a $20 rebate on that first ticket purchase. All righty. Well, let's dive in and talk schedule, Andy. And, you know, we had a really good question. The reason why we wanted to, to kick it off with this is one of our longtime listeners, Brian Flukiger, uh, sent us a great email, uh, uh, you know, talking about Indiana's schedule. And I thought he had some really good points, uh, which we'll get to. And his first question, Andy, and I'll kick this to you, is, you know, he's wondering what drives Indiana to schedule so many of these non-guarantee games. Does the athletic department need a certain amount of home games to offset lost revenue from poor football attendance? And does Tom Crean fear taking the team on the road to a game at a mid-major, you know, say like a 100-200 RPI, RPI team as opposed to the sub-250 teams that we see them play so often at home. you got some data about how poor Indiana's schedule is. Give us that data, and why is it that Indiana seems to do this every year? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two separate pieces to this. So one is just the general number of home games versus road games and things like that. So maybe we'll tackle that first, and then we can get more into the numbers as we go. I, it, it is a... 
it is a revenue play for sure. Um, you know, you've got a fixed number of Big Ten home games that you're going to get every year. Um, IU is is a participant in some kind of preseason event in in most years. It's going to provide some uh, what we hope is good competition and some neutral site games. So those eat up a few of your uh, of your you know non conference home games or your non conference games in total. Um, and outside of that, you've got the, you know, the Big Ten ACC where you're typically every other year have a home game. Uh, the Gavit games are a little bit odd between the Big Ten and the Big East because there's a different number of teams and um, there's some different participation there. You've got the Crossroads Classic where you've got a neutral site game that's kind of baked in. And so um, you're left with, you know, maybe eight ish um, games that you can you can really play with in any given season. I'm going to say, you know, seven or eight. I think this year it's, it's eight, but um, somewhere in that range. So you've got to try to figure out what to do with those games. And you want to play as many of those at home as you can, because for a program like IU, even when you're playing not very good teams, the attendance is going to be there and some of those kinds of things. So we can debate what that means from a season ticket holder standpoint and, and all those things that I think are valid points from the athletic department standpoint. I think that's kind of where they come out on wanting to play most, if not all of those games at home. Um, then you kind of get to, uh, you know, then, then I think we can kind of get to the, you know, taking teams on the road, taking the team on the road. Um, I do think it would be nice to play a, a more, uh, you know, more road games. And I think that's, you know, a lot of mid-major, you know, type programs would, would want that, you know, for every two years they might play at IU, they'd like a return game. And I don't think that's the end of the world. I mean, a lot of times we look back on, um, you know, the season we look, we talk about that NC state win on the road a lot, you know, they won at Evansville before that. And so while it wasn't a, uh, a particularly intimidating team venue, whatever, it did give them some, uh, experience playing away from home, but I think it, it, it's largely a revenue place there. So I would like to see them, uh, you know, try to get a, a road game in a season like this where your big 10 ACC game is at home. Um, but they have opted not to do that. And the reality from the coach's standpoint is, so we kind of talked about the athletic department from a coach's standpoint, they want to get wins. Um, and while you could certainly argue that, um, you know, a middle of the road Missouri Valley team is a team that IU should beat year in and year out. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's a certain value that a, a coach, uh, I don't think this is specific to Tom Cream, but certainly Tom Cream places on, just winning games, quite honestly. And and so uh, I think that leads to a little bit of this. So you know, I'll let Ryan jump in if he wants here before we really kind of start talking more specifically about this year's schedule and what it is. But I think that's kind of where, where the philosophy comes down, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I think that that the one issue that, that people need to realize is how much of a revenue thing this is. I mean, this is an athletic department that needs money and that doesn't pack the football stadium. And in that case, gets 18,000 people every time there's a home game at IU. That's 18,000 tickets. That's concessions. That's, you know, merchandise sold, all of that stuff. And you've got a chance to expand your fan base to younger kids and things like that who are going to become lifelong Indiana fans by going to a game early in the season when they can get tickets. You're not going to get tickets to Big Ten games. I mean, you might be able to get some preseason games. And I think that this is the way it happens at big schools. I mean, if you take your team on the road and you're a big time program, you're either playing in preseason, you're either playing another major school, which is what we would be doing with North Carolina if that was a road game in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. You're either playing another major, uh, high major in you know a back and forth like we did with Kentucky all the time, or you're going to a neutral site. I mean, that, that just is the way it is these days because of how important that revenue is to, to schools. 
it may not be good for the basketball team, but it's it's what the athletic department wants because it wants to rake in that money. And so the hope is you get good uh, non-conference teams to come play you at home. That's really the best you can do and to get neutral site games and treat those neutral site games like road games. Um, I think that the most, I I think the overlooked aspect of uh, neutral site games is people think automatically uh, it's not the same as a road game and, 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 the hard part about a road game is not the crowd. The crowd does, you know, at times influence runs during games and things like that. That's not the hard part of a road game. The road game is being the hard part of a road game is being out of your comfort zone. Is not sleeping in your own bed. Is having to travel. Is you know having weird hours. If you've got a training injury, having to find a new place to you know work out and do things like that to help get treatment. Those are the hard things about being on the road is you're just out of your comfort zone. And so going into a neutral site game, it may not be exactly the same, but it's similar and it gives you that feeling. So that's why you're seeing so many major programs do these neutral site, you know, in a big stadium uh, tournaments and things like that, because they want to get that feeling of being on the road. But they don't want to go. I mean, no one wants to go play at Kansas, you know, early in the season because you're not getting much of a benefit from it. And, uh, uh, financially, and at the same time, you're also there's a very big chance you'll lose, and that could come back to bite you later in the season. Yeah, and I mean, look, if you're trying to prepare yourself for the NCAA tournament, NCAA tournament games are played on neutral sites, so you know it can be good to get used to some of those weird shooting backgrounds and just weird venues of a neutral site. Let me play devil's advocate for a second, though, because you know we talk about you know getting wins and and and, and making revenue, all of this stuff, you know, and. We're not even talking about India necessarily going on the road more, but how about just improving the teams that are coming home? How about instead of, you know, Mississippi Valley State and Savannah State and all these teams that are that are 300 or below in Ken Palm, we get some 150 to 200 teams, just a little bit better teams that maybe will look better for the committee because if we're looking big picture revenue, think about the revenue impact of making a Final Four and what's the impact of getting a four seed as opposed to a five seed for your tournament draw. Right. So that could have a, a bigger impact on revenue than just kind of doing the myopic short sighted thing of just getting as many wins over sub 300 teams as you can. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm right with you there. I think that's my bigger gripe than not playing road games. I mean, you can argue. I mean, you can look back at last year, you know, North Carolina played at Northern Iowa and did lose and it didn't you know, they still ended up with a number one seed. I, you know, you can find examples of teams who played in tough, you know, tough mid-major venues um, they did that in large part so that Marcus Page could play in Iowa, uh, where he's from. But, um, you know, so even that there's kind of an ulterior motive for. But, um, you know, they did lose that game and it didn't, you know, kill their seed or things like that. So there, while there are things to lose, it might not be as much as you think. But but ultimately, where I come down on this is the same place that w- what you just said, Jared. It's not it's not that you're playing home games. It's more who you're playing and kind of the pattern that that has persisted there. So I, I, I kind of went back and looked through. Um, you know, with trying to put it in, in context of this year. So I just looked back through um, warrennolan.com is a site that I used to get like real-time RPI stuff during the season. Um, they also do like a conference RPI there that you can go back and look at. So I just basically took the last five years conference RPI, averaged those out, sorted out the conferences and kind of looked at here's, here's what everybody shakes out. So if you look at it that way, um, you know, we can get into maybe leagues that we could schedule from, but but for now, so the teams, the the conferences I use playing teams from at home this year, they're playing three from the Ohio Valley, which is actually the highest ranked of the ones that are there, uh, which is 23rd. Um, IPFW is in the Summit League, which is ranked 17th. That game's in Fort Wayne. So 
I guess we can count that. That is by far outside of kind of the marquee games on the non-conference schedule. They are by far um, the best other team on this on the schedule, and from by far the best conference. But so there's three teams from the Ohio Valley um, that rank 23rd, and this is out of. Uh, it's a little bit weird because conferences have realigned since then, but there's 34 total conferences that includes independents that were around for a little while. So out of 34, there were 23. That was the best. They play a team from the America East, UMass Lowell. Um, shout out to my middle name being Lowell. Um, they rank 27th um, in there. They play a team from the Big South who is thir- who ranked that conference ranked 30th. They play a team from the Southland that ranked 31st. They play a team from the MEAC who ranked 32nd. And they play a team from the SWAC, which was 33rd. So, I mean, you're littered with conferences that are generally terrible. So even if even if you assume that you might be picking the best of the best teams from those leagues, it's not going to be all that helpful. Now, that then begs the question of, do you think you picked the best teams from those leagues? The answer is no, you did not. Because I then went for each of the teams that are playing and looked at what's been their average RPI for the last five years and just tried to see, like, who hasn't been terrible? So I'm just going to go through these, and I guess this is average RPI order. So IPFW will say they they have been, they actually ranked 71st in RPI last year and 115th two years ago, but they've been outside the top 200 the other year. Should be pretty good this year. Will likely end up around the top of the Summit League. So again, when I say that's by far the best, that's by far the best. Um, Austin P. they've had two seasons in the last five where they were barely inside the top 200 of the RPI. They were outside of the top 300 the other three seasons. Uh, UMass Lowell has only been a Division One team for the last three years. They've never been higher than 260th or 261st. Southeast Missouri State in the last five years has never been higher than 214th. And last year were 342nd out of, I think, 347 Division One teams. Um, Delaware State, they were 345th last year. They have never been higher than 205th, and even most of those were not that good. Houston Baptist, they did their best last year at 225th, but have can were three of the five years been outside of the top 300. Liberty, they have never been better than 264th during that time frame, had most years outside of the top 280. Mississippi Valley State had one year where they only lost one game in conference, and they were 144th, but that was in 2011, 2012. Every year since then, they've been they've been 330th or worst, uh, or worse. And then SIU Edwardsville, um, they have been the best they've done is 292nd, and they've been consistently outside the top 300. So, even if you think these teams might make some strides from last year, the odds of them making a huge jump is is negligible. And those are the kinds of things that really hurt you more than help you. So even if you think that it's going to hurt you to lose a road game at a you know mid tier Missouri Valley program. I'd rather take my chances of that than playing some of these teams who you have a pretty pretty good reason to believe are going to be well outside of the top 200 in the RPI and really do very little for you at all. Um, so I know that was a lot of numbers to kind of plow through on those, but when you look at these teams in the aggregate, there just isn't a lot there, and there isn't a lot of reason to believe that in this year they're going to outperform significantly where they've been in the past. And so you're kind of setting yourself up for what I feel like we've been set up for these last couple of seasons of the importance of these top tier games is magnified so much because those are the only chances that you have. So if out of those, you know, big four games, you go one in three, it's going to feel a lot like conversations that we've had um, for other, you know, for other seasons that it feels like some of these conversations when we start talking about tournament bids and seating and all those kinds of things, um, feels like we're set up to, you know, dig into the archives and, uh, and, and bring some of that same stuff back up. 
Hey, we can just skip the show and just replay replay the old conversations. That sounds exciting. Uh, as Brian said in the chat, you know his ideal selection is five top teams, four mid-level programs, and four cupcakes, which seems reasonable and seems like a schedule that would help Indiana out come tournament time. Unfortunately, we didn't get that schedule this year, so we'll have to just continue griping about it, hope that it changes. I know Fred Glass has said that he is working to get another marquee matchup into Assembly Hall, which would be great. Now, it's not all negative. On the plus side, Indiana does have some better top-level games on the schedule this year, and that's the you know the bonus of this year's schedule is last year, Indiana's non-conference schedule was really dependent on what happened in Maui, and because we stubbed our toe early, we didn't get those games against the Vanderbilts and the Kansases that might have helped out the the schedule come tournament time and that really hurt but this year we know we're playing kansas we know we're playing north carolina we know we're playing louisville and that's huge but andy as you said it really does put pressure on indiana to win those games because if we don't there's not a whole lot else in the non-conference schedule that's going to help lift indiana up and then we get to the big 10 schedule and it's one of the strangest Big Ten schedules, really, that I've seen, just in terms of how it's constructed, with the three home games, uh, even before the students are back to kick it off, and then four out of five games on the road at the end. I mean, Ryan, as you look at Indiana's schedule, and feel free to talk non-conference or conference, uh, you know, what are you, just your general thoughts on how it shapes up? Not you know, in terms of all these bad teams that they're playing, but just how you see it shaping up overall in the year for the Hoosiers. It is very backloaded, and I think we we looked at last year and we thought that that was a backloaded schedule. This is even more backloaded. I mean, you go, you know, from February fifth to March fourth, it's it's pretty crazy. Uh, you've got at Wisconsin at home against Purdue. I mean, look, Purdue's a rival. That game goes either way depending on the attitude of the teams that day. Then they get Michigan at home. Michigan should be much improved this year. Uh, then it's at Minnesota, always a tough place to play. We hate the barn. And we don't have uh, Zeisloff to bail us out this year. <laughs> yeah. And then at Iowa, Iowa is an improving team that played very well last year, lost some key players, but it's still going to have Peter Jock and some other really good guys on that team. And they'll be at home. Then you play at home against Northwestern, which, look, Northwestern isn't good, but it's always an awkward team to play against because of the way they play. So while that's not a loss, it might just be an awkward pain in the butt game to play. Then you finish the season at Purdue and at Ohio State. Again, Ohio State's another team that should be much improved this year just because last year was such a – they had lost so much from the year before. Um, so, I, yeah, it is backloaded. And then you've got that, as you said, the opening with its Nebraska at home. Then you play the neutral site game against Louisville on New Year's Eve. Then you get Wisconsin and Illinois at home. And then you go at Maryland. So it's just an awkward start. It's very – there's no consistency to – Okay, let's get a home game, a road game, then we'll, you know, mix in good team, bad team. And what you what you ideally want is a break between good and bad teams every time. You know, play a Maryland, then get, you know, a home game against Penn State or or whoever. I shouldn't say careful, Penn State, careful. You know? I know. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean? You know, a, a really tough game, then you get a couple games that are, you know, at least medium difficulty, then another tough game instead of having a back-to-back on the road or at home, you kind of want to mix it up. And, and so it is just, it, it, it's just disjointed. It feels like, you know, it feels like it's all kind of rammed together and, uh, and yeah, it's definitely a backloaded schedule. So this team, I mean, hopefully like last year, the team continues to, uh, to get better as the season goes on and, and non-conference wise. I mean, you were talking about how it puts a lot of pressure on, on IU to beat Kansas, North Carolina or Louisville to at least come away with one win. Well, we said that last year too. Um, to, that that they really needed to 
make some hay in, in Maui and then, uh, of course, you know, compete with Duke and then maybe, you know, see what happens. Those two things didn't happen. And I remember for a while it came down. It was like almost like the season hinged on Notre Dame. I mean, we were saying they have to win a big non-conference game or they're not going to get it. Well, they could have. It turned out they could have lost that game, and the way they played in the Big Ten easily would have gotten them, you know, pretty much in the seed they got in in the tournament. I think. Um, yeah, but imagine if we'd won one of those games. Now you're talking about a four seed. I agree. No, I, I agree. I'm just saying that 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 you know, I think we, we put a little because it's early and because those games are you know are against big names and stuff. I think we always put a little bit too much stock in them and and take away from what the conference get. Did we lose Ryan? Can can Andy hear me? I'm sitting right here. Okay, you're back. Okay. Uh, no, if I think we we focus really a lot on the non-conference, and they are important. Don't get me wrong. But if you tank in conference, it's not going to matter what happened in your non-conference. So I feel like those early games are good tests to see if you get better. But you know, if you lose to Kansas and Honolulu, I don't think it's the, you know, I don't think it's a huge blow. If you lose to North Carolina in November, I don't feel like it's a huge blow. Yeah. You want to win one of those games. So you have it on your resume, but let's remember that the big deal is always the big 10 conference. And let's also remember last year, no one expected Indiana to go 15 and three in conference. I mean, that's why the book is called better than advertised. We all looked at that February and March schedule and just figured Indiana would go two and four because of how IU teams have tanked it at the end of the year. So, you know, again, and Andy, you know, kind of our last question on the schedule and then we'll wrap it up and get into the Jersey talk. You know, as you look at that kind of end of Big Ten schedule, you know, Indiana is going to need to finish strong again like they did last year. And hopefully some of the changes that Tom Crean made uh, uh, last year with just how he drove the guys and how he coached the team uh, can help lead to a crescendo at the end of the year again instead of the crash and burn that we've seen in previous seasons. Yeah, I mean, I think that'll that'll become increasingly important given the late schedule, you know, that Ryan talked about. And even, you know, there's a lot of, you know, kind of mini stretches there. And I think that, you know, if I'm putting myself in Tom Green shoes, you know, that's kind of how you, you kind of handle yourself through the season, you know, set up these, you know, mini you know, three game seasons and things like that. And, how, you know, how do we navigate this stretch and that stretch? Because I think there's a lot of those little, uh, you know, those little runs there that that can be challenging, you know, even even the one where you go at Penn State, then Michigan State at home at Michigan. Um, that That's a tough, you know, three gamer. Um, so how do you kind of break the season up into manageable chunks like that? Yeah, how do you manage the roster to get yourself through those uh, those particular times and, and go at it that way? So I think that's definitely going to be important. W- one thing, uh, one thing to just kind of loop back to the a question that Brian had, you know, he did kind of talk about, you know, trying to figure out what solutions to, to some of this might be. Um, I know we talked about this a little bit, just, but just to kind of give a, a little bit more of the, the data around that, you know, again, if we're thinking about conferences that you might want to schedule people from uh, as you look in those leagues where it doesn't have to be the best of the best, but can you get the, you know, kind of mid tier leagues like, you know, Missouri Valley, some of the West coast conference, the Mac where there's, you know, tons of schools, uh, you know, close by that would be able to do that conference USA, the horizon league's got some other, you know, more local teams, the colonial. So, you know, can you shift at least a few of these games? Um, as Brian mentioned in the chat, can you shift a handful of games to those kinds of leagues where again, um, there've been people out there gaming the RPI for, uh, as long as I've been, you know, looking at bracketology, the Colorado States and Southern Miss and some of those where, you know, they do a good job of scheduling games that are going to look good on the RPI, but really aren't ones that you ever feel like you're going to lose. So how do we shift more games into that? It doesn't mean that every game needs to shift there. And if that means, you know, agreeing to some occasional, you know, road games with these, then that's great. Um, I don't know if that's absolutely necessary, but it's just kind of shifting things along, um, 
that way would be, you know, I guess if we start thinking about solutions of how we get through this, I think they're doing a good job of trying to figure out how we get, you know, the, the more, you know, marquee games, tournaments, whatever you want to say. I think it's how we fill in the, the rest of the gap that starts to become important. And if we can start to shift, you know, three games a year into that, those like middle tier leagues, uh, I think that goes a long way toward it. And even if you're going to stay within some of these leagues that are there, can you get, you know, middle of the pack to like upper third teams from those where you're not just getting the worst of the worst. So um, we'll see what happens, you know, as we move forward into next year um, and, and how the schedule evolves over time. But I thought his, I liked his question because he was asking more for solutions, not just to complain about it. So wanted to make sure we touched on that part of the, uh, of what he asked as well. But we like to complain about everything. What, what well, I we mean, can still do that. I'm not <laughs> discouraging the complaining, just, you know, getting somewhere with it after the fact. Uh, you know what I would say? I, you know, one thing that they haven't done that I would really like to see IU do is I'd like to see them one year play a game at Hinkle. Um, I, I just think that would be cool for Indiana basketball fans. Uh, not And I, by saying that, I mean Indiana the state, not the school. Uh, I think that'd be a cool uh, thing to do. And, and also, I, I think that we should – Frankly, as, as Andy said, schedule a MAC team like Ball State every year or something. You know, mix in a team like that that's local that you're going to get, you know, you can say it's a local rivalry and pump it up like that. I mean, clearly it's not. But, you know, do some different things like that from, a, a, a you know, a upper tier conference. Bring in Indiana State. I mean, we've played them before. I mean, that's a team that, you know, is, again, local and plays in a conference that isn't usually awful. I mean, you know, bring in some teams uh, that, you know, you can build something with and maybe maybe continue to build those relationships because that's part of it. Part of it is these athletic directors having relationships with each other and coming to agreements. You know, that that's an overlooked part of this, and, and it's who Fred Glass knows and can reach out to and set things up with and negotiate with to, to have them come in. Well, and hopefully the IPFW game is a step in that direction. And hopefully as, as Tom Crean gets more comfortable, you know, with the state of the program and, and a little more self-assured, you know, and all of that, uh, we'll start to see that. Are you guys ready for Jersey talk? Let's do it. Let's do some Jersey talk. Now, real quick, before we do that, I do want to remind everybody to go to assemblycall.com slash join. Make sure you activate your free membership to the assembly call. We've got a bunch of new stuff. Uh, that you get as a free member. It's totally free. It takes like 15 seconds to join. Just go to assemblycall.com slash join. Best of all, you get to participate in our live chat, which goes on during all of our live shows. Uh, you'll get our six banner Saturday post sent right to your inbox. So make sure that you go there uh, and become a member. All right. So we are going to start this new series. This was Andy's idea. It's brilliant. We're going to go through every single jersey number. Tonight, we're going to start with zero through 10. All right, and we're going to go through, and the way that we'll set this up is I'll go through and I'll just, I'll read out the guys uh, who are kind of up for it because obviously there's a lot of guys who have had different jerseys. I'll read them all out. We'll read out the nominees for the best guy. I'll tell you a little bit about them, and then we'll go around the horn and vote. You know, and we'll try and keep it a little bit short, take 30 to 45 seconds to state our case. And obviously there's three of us, so one person will uh, will have to win. We hope you'll participate uh, in the chat. And as you're listening on the podcast, just because you're not listening live doesn't mean we don't want you to participate. Feel free to tweet me at Assembly Call as you're listening to this and give us your vote for who you think is the greatest Hoosier to wear each jersey number. So we start out with the number zero. And this is an interesting one because Will Sheehy wore the number zero as a junior and senior, but he started as number 10. And he did some pretty epic things during both segments of his career. So we're going to keep him in both. So you can actually vote for him for either 0 or 10. 
But as the number zero, his junior and senior year, he had that incredible performance against Purdue, where I think he was nine for nine, 22 points. He was the sixth man of the year in 2013. And of course, his senior year in 2014 wasn't such a good season. Now, the other guy who's up for this, because the only other people with the number zero are Corey Barnett and now Curtis Jones, who has that number. But the only other guy is Max Bielfeld. And this is an interesting comparison because Max was also sixth man of the year in 2016. And of course, he had the better than advertised season last year. So, Ryan, we will go to you first, uh, since obviously you love Will Sheehy and you clearly love Max Bielfeld. Uh, who who wore it best? Who is the greatest shooter to wear the number zero? Will Sheehy as a junior and senior or Max Bielfeld, who, of course, only played one season? I, OK, <laughs> I'm, I'm going about this as the guy who took fewer years off my life, and that's going to be Max Bielfeld. And also, the book. Pick it up at your local online retailers right there. Better than advertised, Bielfeld. Assemblycall.com slash book if you're listening audio only. Plus, Max Bielfeld has been on uh podcast on The Brink, which you host. Uh, he, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I have to, I think I have to go with Max Bielfeld. I think his impact on the program was tremendous. I love, I mean, Will Sheehy obviously gave a, a great contribution, but I feel like it, Max Bielfeld was one for one, man. He's batting a thousand. He won a big 10 championship his one year at the program was such a key component to that team. Uh, just what he brought. And, and since you don't have the long sample size, it's basically comparing a career to one year in my opinion, and I have to give it to Bielfeld because of what he meant to that team, what he provided. And he came in in a way more difficult situation, having to transfer in, you know, and over summer essentially become a leader and, and a guy that, that the team could rely on as Thomas Bryant figured out college basketball. So I have to go with Max Bielfeld. I'm sorry to, to Will Sheehy. Will Sheehy also has points taken away for that chest tattoo. So, uh, yeah, I'm going I'm going with Max Bielfeld. All right, Andy, Max or Will? Uh, that's, that's a tough one. I th- This is one where, and we'll, we, there's a few more of these as we get going, where there's kind of how you value the longevity of somebody in the program and things like that, and then even trying to separate out the Sheehy accomplishments from wearing one jersey to another uh, is a little bit is a little bit weird. Um, I, I'm going to... I'm going to lean Sheehy here Uh, again. I mean, you know, great season of that 2012, 13 season. While I think the VCU shot was the year prior. um, That was his sophomore year. Yeah. So he did win six man of the year in 2013. So those, those awards to me kind of cancel each other out. Um, You've got, you know, just, I I don't know, some good moments. I think I I struggle to separate, you know, kind of what, you know, he and Victor brought back to the program uh, as they got in, even though I know that was more in their, you know, kind of early career period before she truly wore number zero, but his original number had a zero in it. So uh, I think half credit for those years. So I'm going to go, I'm going to go Sheehy and put the pressure on you to break the tie. Well, it is hard. If if this was Will Sheehy's four years, it's clearly Will Sheehy because of the swagger that he and Victor Oladipo brought back, the shot that he had against VCU, the incredible dunk against Melson Bahabi or uh, of Iowa that we all remember. But that was all his first two years. And look, that sixth man of the year was great in 2013, but that 2014 team really flamed out. You know, when he was expected to take on on a leadership role, and obviously that didn't happen with that team. And so if we're going to do it in this awkward way where we're splitting Will Sheehy into his two numbers, but hey, that's what you get for switching numbers. I'm going to go with Max Bielfeld. Uh, but we're going to get back to Will Sheehy for the number 10, and he'll get a chance to redeem himself because I thought his contributions as a freshman and sophomore, and don't forget, 
Will Sheehy made some huge three-pointers in the second half of that IU-Kentucky game as well. So he really had some big moments as a freshman, sophomore. But I'm going to go with Max Bielfeldt uh, to break the tie. Maybe it's a little bit of recency bias because we just got done with Max's season. So if you want to argue that, uh, I'm okay with it. Uh, this is a really tough one, but I'll go with Max to break the tie. Alrighty, next up, the number one. And this is going to be a great debate between the value of longevity over a short spurt of stardom. So not uh, considered for this, Armand Bassett, Michael Santa, Noah Vonley, who you could argue is maybe the most talented guy to wear the number one, but he is not considered. Uh, Evan White, and then, of course, James Blackman Jr., who wears it right now and maybe could vault himself into this conversation. But the two guys up for this debate... Jordan Halls and Jared Jeffries, both guys from Bloomington, Mr. Basketballs, wore the number one. Jordan Halls obviously appeared in two Sweet 16s and won a Big Ten title, 27th all-time in points, 12th all-time in assists, one of the most prolific three-point shooters in Indiana history, had that incredible free-throw streak, and just embodied so much about what it means to be an Indiana basketball player and played in so many games coming into Indiana at a time when things were down and helping restore the pride of Indiana basketball. However, he goes up against Jared Jeffries, one of the biggest recruits that Indiana has gotten in the last 30 years. I remember that was an epic decision, and Jared Jeffries chose Indiana over heading out to the ACC. He finished 23rd on our 50 greatest Hoosiers of all time list, and that's only playing two seasons. And the reason why is because Jared Jeffries led Indiana to a national title game and a Big Ten title. He was a second team All-American, a Big Ten MVP. Jordan Halls never had any individual honors like that. And of course, the, the defining moment of Jared Jeffries' career to me is his 23-point, 15-rebound performance in that epic win over Duke, which was just unbelievable. So I'm going to tell you right now, my vote is going to Jared Jeffries. It's hard because I love Jordan Hulls, but I, I continue to think that Jared Jeffries is one of the most underappreciated players in Indiana history, just in terms of how good he was overall. Uh, I just think he's great, and he's my vote for number one. Andy? Who you got, Jared Jeffries or Jordan Hulls? Yeah, it's it's funny with Jeffries because you kind of, you know, some of these guys who aren't aren't there as long and, you know, time starts to pass a little bit, like you forget. And so actually going back and putting together some of the, the stats for this uh, was a good reminder. I mean, Jeffries, even as a freshman, almost 14 points a game, uh, just about seven rebounds, over two assists, uh, over one, you know, 1.2 blocks, um, did, did a lot of things there. They followed that up by, you know, being named All-American the following season and getting to the uh, to the title game. So I had to go with Jeffries. I mean, love holes for all the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, you know, career 44% three-point shooter, 86% free throw shooter. Um, just how he improved so much over the course of his time uh, and what he meant to the rebuilding effort is, uh, you know, certainly doesn't go without notice and without praise but uh yeah I, I want jeffries here as well i left something out that should be mentioned brian mentioned it in our chat J jordan halls did have candy stripes at his wedding so that is a notch uh, that does you know, that does help that for might, sure that might change things a little bit right also also bassett was the first of uh multiple kelvin sampson all-stars mentions that will uh come up as we go through some of these uh these early numbers yes <laughs> i thought we agreed never to speak that man's name on this show was we that did. we did okay all right uh yeah, I I have to go with Jared Jeffries here. If this were about, you know, who was the best leader, you know, who were the, some of the best leaders in IU history were, who's some of the best people in IU history, uh, Holes would certainly get consideration as a top 10 
throughout the history of the program, not just for his number. Uh, but but Jeffrey's just had such an impact. And, and, and it's easy to forget because he was only on campus for two years. You also have to take into account defense. And, yeah, you can you can look at numbers offensively, you know, in a statistical manner and 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 forget that because, you know, a lot of the statistics in basketball are geared towards offense, but defensively Jeffries was a fantastic defender. And, and I think that, you know, anytime you're a big 10 MVP, uh, especially in a, in a conference that was as loaded as it was back then. And, and, you know, is sort of been built up to be as loaded again now, uh, you know, and you have those epic performances, as you said, like that Duke game, and, and taking a team to a national title. And, and and so I think that it's just hard to argue with that. I mean, Holes was great, and, and he was great at what he did, and he was great um, for who he was. But it's sort of, you know, to me, it's – it's it, it, you just – you have to look at the greatness while it was there. I think that longevity is great, but if you're looking at a guy who was an All-American, a Big Ten MVP, and led you to a Final Four and a, and a national ch- title game, that elevates you. And I think that's – it's the same argument as to why – Beal felt was elevated over over Sheehy for me. It's if you look at that condensed, you know, body of work, and and think about how much was accomplished in such a short period of time, you kind of have to give it to that guy. So this is a clean sweep. I'm going with Jared Jeffries. You know, one of the reasons I think Jeffrey sometimes gets underappreciated is when he came in from high school, he was kind of billed as this almost Kevin Durant type that could shoot and play out on the wing. And I remember when he got there, one of his first games, he bricked a couple of three-pointers. And I was like, wait a minute, where's the outside shooting from this guy? And that never really materialized. And he really became a post player, but he was such a good scorer and such a good passer. He's one of the most underrated interior passers in IU basketball history as well. Um, and I just think, you know, for those reasons, he maybe didn't get the appreciation that he deserved, but he's such a great player. So a clean sweep, Jared Jeffries, the greatest Hoosier ever to wear the number one. Now we get to what I think is going to be the most epic of all the debates. This is the toughest one for me. As I talk right now, I don't know who I'm going to choose. It's the number two. Now, here are the guys for number two that did not make the cut. We've got Andrew Calamaris. James Hardy, who, of course, made the NFL, one of the best football players to play basketball for Indiana. Matt Roth, DeAndre Thomas, another KS All-Star, Nick Zeisloft, and now Josh Newkirk wears the number two currently. But clearly, the two greatest Hoosiers to ever wear the number two are A.J. Moye and Christian Watford. Now, when, when I did the 50 greatest Hoosiers list, A.J. Moye finished 73rd, Christian Watford finished 74th. So they are right next to each other in that and, of course, what's so appropriate about that is that 74-73 score is the score that Indiana beat Duke by. And A.J. Moye had a pretty big role in that because he had the epic block on Carlos Boozer. But what people forget is A.J. actually had the two free throws that gave us our 73rd and 74th points in that game. And it was his aggressiveness late that would not allow Indiana to give up their lead when Duke started making a comeback. So A.J. had such a bigger impact on that game than just the block. Of course, those of us who were in school at the time or who were going to games at the time remember the epic A.J. Moye chance that would reverberate throughout Assembly Hall. I mean, he was a fan favorite like few other Hoosiers. I mean, there is a short list of guys who have reached that level of epic fan favorite that A.J. Moye had. He, he was an emotional leader during a tumultuous time at IU made a final game, and for some reason only played seven minutes in the championship game. I still wonder how things might have been different if A.J. had gotten more time. But sometimes, you know, those qualitative aspects of A.J. overshadow the fact that, you know, he only had career averages of 6.1 points and 3.9 rebounds. So he was a guy who played out of position some, 
come as a 6263 guy playing a lot of power forward. So his numbers really didn't stack up. And that's where Christian Watford has him because Christian for his career averaged 13.1 points and 5.9 rebounds made two sweet 16s, played on a Big Ten champion. And hey, Christian has his own big moments, obviously with the shot, but not just the shot. He has a moment in the NCAA tournament as well. We remember that block against Temple, which helped save Indiana from that an, a potentially embarrassing loss to Temple in the round of 32 before the Syracuse game when they would eventually bow out. And if you think back even to the year before when Indiana played Kentucky in the Sweet 16, Christian just went off in the first half of that game and almost single-handedly kept Indiana in that ball game early in the first half, making three-pointer after three-pointer. It is so tough between these two guys. Uh, so I will start with you, Andy, and let's get your vote on A.J. Moye or Christian Watford. All right, one one quick note on some the other guys you mentioned. Matt Roth actually wore only wore number two for his freshman year, and then Watford took it over after that, and Roth switched to thirty. Yep. Um, so I this this one was tough. It's um, as opposed to the other where it's like a you know couple year or two of of greatness, and then uh, you know versus uh, longevity. This one is they both have the longevity. It's kind of the you know the the qualitative versus the quantitative that you mentioned, and kind of the the spirit and the way that you remember uh, the players, you know maybe more so than the stats. Uh, so that that's the part that makes this challenging on sheer numbers alone. I don't think it's that close. Um, the the kind of Moyes mentality and and quotability and some of those kinds of things I think bring it back. But I I still go with Watford here. Um, you know, w- was there as part of the, you know, the rebuilding of the program, uh, had the, you know, moment that will live forever in IU history with the the shot to beat Kentucky. And, and really, you know, some of the numbers show how he improved as a shooter over the course of time, started out as a, you know, 32% three-point shooter, finished his career and his senior year is 48% from there, um, shot 80% from the free throw line every year of his career, uh, hovered around that six rebound mark, uh, you know, throughout. So it was part of the big 10 champion had a good tournament moment as well, as you mentioned. Um, so I went with him. Uh, I, I think it speaks a lot to what AJ Moye was um, that it actually is a debate quite honestly. Yep. Ryan, you said uh, in our chat, this isn't a hard one for you. I don't, I don't think this is a hard one. I mean, I love AJ Moye and I think that, that his heart was, was really the, the thing that drove him. And I think if you're talking again, as we said with holes, if you're talking about a, an all time, you know, leader or somebody that you remember, one of the more memorable Hoosiers, he'd certainly make it. And he'd certainly be up there on my list too. And I was only there. I was only in school one year while he was there. Um, but at the same time, I think it's, I think it's a pretty open and shut case for Christian Watford. He's 10th on the all time. IU scoring list with 1730 points, uh, only 10 behind Kent Benson and 11 behind Damon Bailey. I mean, think about that. You know, those two guys are two that we consider two of the best to ever wear the uniform. And he's right there with them as a scorer. And he was on bad teams. You know, this wasn't a guy who he had people focusing on him. He had the watch shot, which, in my opinion, is a top five IU moment of all time. Um, maybe top six, because I guess you consider the championships all there. But, you know, as far as a single play, that's one of the greatest of all time. I think the Moye block is in that mix as well. I think that's, you know. But I think that whole sequence kind of gets involved if you're talking about, you know, a great moment. It's not just the block. It's everything else in there. And, and he was very much involved. Um, but I just think that that Wofford is he's a very underappreciated guy because he was a very unassuming kid, very quiet. What He was one of those guys who could quietly put in 15 points. He didn't show up. He hit his shot, jogged back. You never saw him get pumped up. You never saw him pump his fists. You never saw him do that. 
but he's also a guy who became a really good defender towards the end of his career. I mean, there were times they put him on point guards because of his length. And, and you know, that was something that he kind of seemed like a soft guy for a long time. But he actually became a very good defender late in his career, uh, was a tar- part of two Sweet 16 teams, one Big Ten champion, uh, and, and, you know, really gave a defining memory for a lot of people with that Kentucky shot and the calm he showed to sit there, not shy away and shoot that shot. I mean, people, you know, you don't understand how difficult that is to maintain your cool in a game winning situation like that. And to make that shot, I mean, he has that memory for the rest of his life and I think he'll always be remembered for it. And and I think that that helps elevate him in this debate. He he was, he was a, a great player all the way around and, and was a part of bringing IU basketball back and, and, you know, made the most of his opportunities. And so I have to give this to Christian Wofford, although as the, you both of you as well say, I, you know, I love AJ Moye. will always love AJ Moye. And uh, he's one of those guys that you kind of feel like, man, I wish he would come back and co- you know, be an assistant on the team or something like that, because you want him around the program. He was just such a good guy, but I got to give this one to Wofford. You know, if my time at IU didn't overlap with AJ's, I think this would be a lot easier, you know, just because objectively it is Christian Watford. And Andy, like you said, the fact that AJ even makes this a debate is a testament to what kind of player he was, what kind of hustle, what kind of heart, just how he positioned himself in the minds and the hearts of IU fans. Uh, And what I love about both of these guys is they committed to Indiana at a time when a, a a blue blood basketball program was very shaky. You know, AJ recommitted to Indiana after Bob Knight was fired. And I remember reading quotes from him as a recruit and talking about how much he wanted to play for Bob Knight and be pushed by Bob Knight. And then for Knight to be fired and for him to stay and to do what he did after that same thing with Christian Watford to come, uh, you know, amidst the rubble of the post 2008 IU basketball era and to do what he did. And the other thing to remember about Watford is it wasn't just the Kentucky shot that he made. He made a lot of clutch shots through his career. I remember either his freshman or sophomore year, Indiana had that 15 or 16 season drought at the Breslin Center, and he made shot after shot. I think Indiana lost that game 72-70. But, man, Christian Watford was such a big player in that game. Uh, and so I've got to give it to Christian uh, you know, for just the, 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 the production uh, the growth that he showed, Brian, like you talked about, you know, becoming better as a defender, becoming an all-around player. And and he's a guy who could have left after his junior year and came back to Indiana to do something special. Uh, they did do something special, winning another Big Ten title. So, uh, you know, he, he wasn't the fiery guy that A.J. was, but a great Hoosier nonetheless, and his production wins out. So it is unanimous, Christian Watford over A.J. Moy. But we do want to get your thoughts on this. So I set up a page with a poll. If you go to assemblycall.com slash number two, N-U-M-B-E-R-2, that'll take you to the page. And we want you to vote uh, on uh, on that between AJ uh, or Christian Watford. Give us your vote. Let us know who you think. And at the end of the show tonight, I'll read off where we are. Okay, Uh, let's keep going here. Let's go with the number three. And there are actually three entrants in this one that we're going to discuss. Guys who are do not make the cut. We have Maurice Creek, Johnny Marlin, Charlie Miller. Daniel Moore, Jerry Stuteville, Max Hotzel, OG Ananobi, who could potentially make his way onto this list, although he'll have to have some pretty epic seasons considering who's already on it. Uh, Patrick Ewing Jr., Art Beckner, and Ken Gunning. But the three guys that are up for this, we have Jay Edwards, DJ White, and based on popular uh, Twitter suggestion, Tom Coverdale. 
So Jay Edwards, he finished 39th on the 50 greatest Hoosiers of all time list. He's 46th in points, but 11th in points per game because Jay only played two seasons. Obviously, he went pro after an epic sophomore season where he was a second-team All-American. He was an All-Big Ten player, and he led Indiana to a Big Ten championship when there were some other great teams. That was with the Flying Illini, Glenn Rice's Michigan team. Indiana won the Big Ten that year, and if you've ever seen uh, the epic shot that he made against Michigan where Bob Knight's going berserk, the fadeaway three-pointer in the corner against Illinois, uh, another one against Purdue. He had this string of game-winning shots that propelled Indiana to that Big Ten championship. The Hoosiers would go on and make the Sweet 16. Uh, but Jay Edwards, maybe the sweetest stroke in IU basketball history, and that's saying something with the shooters that we've had. Uh, next on the list is DJ White who actually finished 30th on the 50 greatest Hoosiers of all time list. Another guy who really grew over four years and compiled some great stats. He's 17th all time in points, 11th all time in rebounds, third in blocks, third in field goal percentage, and had a great 2008 when he and Eric Gordon teamed up. That team started 17 and one. Obviously it faded uh, at the end, but he was a second team all American and a big 10 MVP. Uh, again, kind of an underrated guy. There's no real DJ white moment but just as a junior and senior was just as steady as they came, uh, a great post score, a good rebounder and a very good defender. And then you got Tom Coverdale, who doesn't stack up statistically, but kind of like A.J. Moye is just a beloved figure in IU history. You know, the, the redheaded kid, a little bit overweight, slower, didn't get to play much as a freshman. But man, when Mike Davis gave him the keys to the car, he drove it well uh, and he was a Big Ten champion. Uh, you also wonder how Indiana might have done in the national championship game with a healthy Tom Coverdale because he got hurt during that tournament run. Uh, he finished fourth in assists. He's seventh in steals. To me, he's not really in this debate, but I, I get, you know, because of what he meant, uh, why we'll honor him with entering him into the debate. Uh, but Ryan, let's go to you first. Who you got? Jay Edwards, DJ White or Tom Coverdale? Again, it's a really tough call because you got a guy who was there. I, I think this comes down to DJ White and and Jay Edwards. Uh, Coverdale, while, again, is an emotional attachment, I think, for a lot of people because of the way he played and who he was on the floor and all that stuff. But I think this has to come down to uh, to DJ and, and Jay Edwards. And, again, it's, it's a matchup between a guy who had a very short um, – but notable career and a guy who really stuck with it and became a better player as he went along. Um, you know, DJ white was big 10 freshman of the year uh, as a, as a freshman really showed then was injured his sophomore year when they really could have used him. That was, that was Mike Davis's final season where they had Marco Killingsworth and the whole, you know, team was built around this idea that you'd have this twin towers in the post and that you could have Killingsworth go all out for, 22 25 minutes a game and dj white would be the you know would be there to clean up and play with him and then play about 30 minutes dj white got hurt marco killingsworth they were relying on him to play 30 minutes a game we all know marco was not in the greatest shape in the world and you know really struggled with that so that could have been an outstanding team that was a final four talent team and, and missing dj it showed um you know because he was such a big part of their plans but he came back, as Jared said, junior, senior year, very consistent, uh, such a great post scorer, high field goal percentage guy, uh, rarely took bad shots, was great on defense, was great at blocking shots, finished, I think, third all time in, in block shots in IU history. He's 11th in rebounds, 17th in points and third in field goal percentage. 
I got to give it to DJ White because of that. I think that, that the numbers he put up are not numbers you can ignore. I mean, how high he ranks in the all-time ra- you know rankings. Jay Edwards, for me, is a little bit of a what could have been because of how good that sophomore year is. Imagine what he could have done his junior year. You know, and and playing and, with Calvert Cheney. Yeah. And, and so you're looking at that team and you're like, man, it's almost like a missed opportunity, is how I look at it. And I think some of this has to be, you know, projection and and what you think. And and DJ White, you know, stuck with it, stuck all four years and and made the most of his his time. And I think that has to be part of the consideration. As you said, second team all American, Big Ten MVP. Um you know, and that was on a team with Eric Gordon, where Eric Gordon was scoring like crazy, and DJ White was the guy who won the MVP, and that that just tells you a lot about him. Uh, you know how that season went. So I, I have to pick DJ White. I, it's incredibly close. This is probably the toughest one for me so far, uh, but I, I picked DJ White because of the overall body of work he put together. Andy, who you got? Yeah, this this was definitely the hardest one for me um, to kind of to sort through um one other quick thing we did mention ken gunning he was an all-american in 1937 so i tried to at least go through and highlight any of the ones who were uh, all americans particularly some of the ones that were uh older that people may not have heard of um yeah it it was tough i mean to go back again look at some of these stats again uh my memory isn't very good so a lot of these i you know didn't remember the dj white averages double double as a senior uh and and some of those things and and, you know shot 60 percent from the floor and and all the big plays that he made i I'm gonna I'm gonna go Jay Edwards. I think Jay Edwards at his peak was one of the best IU basketball players I've ever seen. Um, and you know, just looking at some of these numbers, this is all uh, assuming I didn't miss enter the, any of these into the spreadsheet. But shot over fifty percent from three. His freshman year was still forty five percent in a in a quote unquote down year as a uh, as a sophomore from his shooting. So shot over forty eight percent from three point range in his two years. Uh, about eighty five percent from the line. Averaged four rebounds his, his second year. Uh, even dished out over three assists each year. So, you know, he drew so much attention, but was still a, a willing passer uh, at that point. Had 27 blocks his uh, his sophomore year as well. So I, I just thought him at his peak, some of those moments that you mentioned, that that run of games he had where he was, you know, making huge shot after huge shot and, and was a guy who you always felt like in those big moments when he went up with it and that, uh, you know, that sweet jump shot that it was going to go in. And, um, and, and a guy that came in with huge expectations based on what he and, and Lyndon Jones, who we... Uh, who, you know, will be in the number four uh, discussion next. You know, they came in after having won the state titles at Marion, a, a lot of expectation on him and what he did to, uh, you know, kind of live up to that in what unfortunately was only those two years, but but was an amazing two years, the second of which he averaged 20 points a game. Uh, I went with Jay Edwards, but that was definitely a close one. I think both guys are extremely deserving in this case. Yeah, I'm glad you gave some love there to Ken Gunning. I missed that when I was putting this together. But yeah, Indiana went 18-2 and two, uh, his senior year. Uh, he was a leading scorer, uh, All-American, so so Ken Gunning certainly uh, warrants mention in this discussion. I got to go with Jay Edwards. I, I just think, Andy, like you said, Jay Edwards at his peak, uh, one of the greatest offensive Indiana basketball players that there has been, and I think you do get extra credit for epic moments that lead to something meaningful. And if Jay Edwards, you know, three straight game-winning shots down the stretch had just led to Indiana finishing fifth in the Big Ten, fine. But that gave Indiana one of its most unexpected and challenging Big Ten titles of all time in a stacked conference. Indiana really had no business winning the Big Ten that year, but they did because of the singular greatness of Jay Edwards. And I just think he's a unique player in how good he was and how he played. Uh, And yes, it is a a story of what could have been and and you wish he had stayed to see what could have happened. But even what he did uh, was spectacular. And that takes nothing away from DJ White 
but I've got to give the edge to Jay Edwards there. So Jay Edwards wins that one two to one. He is the greatest Hoosier to wear the number three. Uh, no votes for Tom Coverdale. Ryan, are you sure you don't want to offer a write-in vote for Tom Coverdale? Here no, I'm good. Go? I'm good. All right. Uh, let's move on to number four. Uh, this features one of Andy's favorite players of all time. Uh, guys who did not get chosen here, Brent Finkelmeyer, Lyndon Jones, who you mentioned, uh, Andy, uh, Luke Recker, Chris Rolls, uh, Dale Vial, Robert Johnson. Uh, could he make his way into this? Who knows with his junior and senior year and Gene Ferris. But the two guys who are up for this one, Victor Oladipo and Bracey Wright, uh, two guys who are really on polar opposite ends of kind of the beloved Hoosier spectrum. you got Victor Oladipo, 27th on our list of the 50 greatest Hoosiers, finished 39th in points and third in steals, but it was never the numbers with Victor. Uh, he was a first-team All-American as a senior, team MVP, a Big Ten champion, two Sweet 16s. And when he and Will Sheehy came, Sheila Depot, they brought the swagger back to Indiana. And Victor went from a raw, just, you know, guy who just these flailing arms and legs as a freshman to now almost every year, someone is trying to pinpoint who's going to make the Oladipo leap. And I think that does a little bit of a disservice to Victor Oladipo, thinking there, there can be other guys who work as hard as him, that are as dedicated as him. And that will improve as much as him. Uh, Victor just showed unbelievable growth, maybe more so than any Hoosier from his freshman to his senior year or, or junior year. And then you got Bracey Wright, who, look, for all of his faults, one of the better pure scorers in IU basketball history. You have to give him that. Uh, 16th in points. He was a team MVP on a team that never really did anything. And despite the hype, Indiana fans just never fully embraced uh, Bracey. Uh, you know, you can say that maybe the system he was in and, and, and the coach that he had didn't bring out the best in him. Uh, but a little bit of unfulfilled potential there. For me, this one's easy. It's Victor Oladipo. Uh, Andy, I'm assuming you're going to cast your vote for Bracey, right? <laughs> no, not not the case. Um, definitely a, a volume volume shooter, I think, is the correct term for that. Uh, you know, I, I mean, for me, it, again, it was good to go back and kind of see you know, the bracer did average at least 16 points a game in each of his three years. Um, but again, only shot, shot around 40% from the field. Um, you know, the, the strides that Oladipo made over the course of his career, how much he improved. Um, but even, you know, remembering some of his contributions as a freshman, although unheralded and didn't average a lot of points, um, just, you kind of saw at least some of the, you know, scrappiness on, on the glass and on defense that, you know, would, would later become uh, calling cards of his from a defensive uh, perspective for sure. So, you know, that one was uh, pretty easy for me with Oladipo. I think the team accomplishments uh, definitely help him overcome uh, any of the, you know, kind of raw number aspects where he, he would lag behind Bracey. And he had the greatest Miss dunk in basketball history. Also true. Uh, Ryan? Yeah, this one's not hard for me. Uh, it's it's Victor Oladipo. I think that that the contributions as a teammate uh, is where he knocks uh, Bracey out of this one. I think Bracey was a guy who, uh, you know, to his credit, was asked to score a lot uh, and 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 given the ball and given a really long rope to score a lot. And and I think that that wound up hurting him in the mind of a lot of people because he was kind of a gunner and just shot a lot. And, you know, whether it was a good shot or a bad shot, he wasn't allergic to any of them. Uh, but Oladipo, you look at defensively, Oladipo is one of the greatest Indiana players, in my opinion, uh, at the guard spot. He's one of the greatest defenders Indiana's ever had. Uh, I, I don't think you can compare him to a post player just because it's a different type of defense. Um, but, you know, third all-time in steals and he only played three seasons. Uh you know, 39th in points, 
but he's a guy who quite frankly should have been big 10 player of the year. His, his final year, I don't know, he shut down Trey Burke twice, or if he didn't shut him down, he made Burke shoot about 30 times to get 25 points. So, uh, and, and Burke was the guy who was named uh, the player of the year. I think I thought that was a complete miscarriage of justice. Uh, he led them to an Indiana champion or a big 10 championship. He had a lot of big moments. I mean, this wasn't just a guy who, who went along and, you know, scored some points, played some defense and was great. He had huge game changing moments uh, that changed momentum on both ends of the floor. And, and that's why you get people comparing, Oh, who's going to be the next Victor Oladipo. It's not just who's going to convert athletic talent into basketball skill. It's who's going to be that guy that is the straw that stirs the drink that can change a game in an instant. And I think that's why you get OG Ananobi compared to him so much is because you saw that last year, OG Ananobi could, create a steal on one end and, and finish with a dunk on the other that got everybody involved and, and, and pumped up. So I think it's an easy one. I think it's Victor Oladipo and, and I don't think, uh, I don't think it's even a question. Yeah. You know, I always, whenever I think of Victor, I always think of that Michigan state game in East Lansing when Indiana finally broke that streak of road losses to Michigan state. And he just seemed to do little thing after little thing, rebounds and steals and just good defensive plays. That game sums up for me what Victor Oladipo meant. I don't even remember what his stats were that game. I'm sure he stuffed the stat sheet, but it was just an incredible game. Victor Oladipo, the greatest Hoosier ever to wear the number four. So we're going to do the number five, and then we're going to stop. We were perhaps a little bit uh, ambitious, thinking that we could get all the way to 10. Uh, but we do want to give everybody their due, so we don't want to rush through them too much. So we're going to go to number five, and then we'll stop, and we'll come back to this. Uh, and number five will be fun because it features Ryan's favorite Hoosier of all time, Marco Killingsworth. So we'll talk about him. Uh, guys who did not make the cut at number five. Oh, another one of Andy's favorites. George Leach is on here. Uh, Jordan Crawford, Samuel Miranda, Neil Reed, Jeremiah Rivers, Chucky White, and Michael Niokos. Nikos, I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, but the three guys that are up for this, we have Ernie Andrus, who played at Indiana from 1937 to 39. So he graduated before Indiana won that title in 1940, played for Branch McCracken. Uh, he's actually 22nd on our list of the 50 greatest Hoosiers. He was a third-team All-American, but he was a two-time All-Big Ten player, a two-time team MVP, He's in the Indiana Hall of Fame, and then he's a guy who actually played baseball professionally, was uh, a twice won the Balfour Award as the greatest athlete at Indiana, and ended up coaching baseball at Indiana from 48 to 73. But just his accomplishments as a basketball player, when compared against his peers as an All-American and All-Big Ten player uh, and a team MVP, vault him into pretty rarefied air as an IU player. Uh, he goes up against Troy Williams. Uh, who, of course, was a Big Ten champion last year, one of the great athletic uh, marvels in IU history, certainly has some of the most memorable dunks in IU history, and is a 1,000-point score. And I think on balance, when we look back at Troy Williams' contributions, I think Troy was better than we give him credit for. And I actually think that history will be kind to the Troy Williams era, uh, in part because we focus so much on the bad Troy moments that I think sometimes we forgot about the good Troy and the pressure that he put on defenses. And I think there's going to be several times we come on the postgame show this year and talk about how Indiana missed something that Troy might have done in this game uh, or the other. So uh, props to Troy there. And then you got Marco Killingsworth, who only played one year, but was certainly a star that one year. 17.8 points, 7.1 boards, had that epic 34-point, 10-board, two-block shot game. Uh, when Indiana played Duke at home, Indiana lost that game 75-67, and Ryan still has hearing loss, I believe, from being at that game. 
but it was certainly an epic performance from Marco. So I'm going to cast my vote for Ernie Andrus. I think it's tough to go against a guy who was a two-time All-Big Ten player and a two-time team MVP uh, over guys like Troy Williams and Marco Killingsworth. Um, but I think certainly they're, they're they're worthy of being in the debate. So Andy, who you got? Ernie, Troy, or Marco? Yeah, th- this one's hard because it was it's really been the first one where you're trying to take vastly different eras and uh, and attempting to you know kind of compare accomplishments uh, in that regard and and take a guy who none of us had the ability to see play. Uh, you know, anybody that we've really debated on thus far. However bad I'd say my memory is, I at least remember seeing them play and can, you know, point to moments and things that I remember about them. So that's where it becomes a little bit difficult. Um, you know, Killingsworth was interesting. Again, it's the, you know, the one season that was really good compared to some of the longevity. Uh, I would probably give Troy the nod over him uh, just for some of the, again, kind of given a, a little bit of extra credit for team accomplishments and some of the highlight plays and things like that. Um, but I think I'm with you. I'm going to I'm going to lean toward Ernie on this one uh, again, just based off of, you know, what you, you, what you laid out in terms of uh, accomplishments that he had starting to set the, you know, helps set the groundwork for those teams that would, you know, the team that would win the championship the next year. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think those are, those are things that stand out for sure. And, and while I, it is hard to put some of this into context, he averaged uh, 12 and a half points a game, at least based on where I got the stats in the 1937, 38 season where he was an all American, as you mentioned. Um, I think in any of these cases, you go back to that, period of basketball find people averaging points in double figures is not easy to find uh, at least as I've gone through the numbers that we have uh, we've touched on so far so I'm going to give him the nod uh, somewhat blindly based on reading through the numbers and I would probably have Troy second out of the group that we mentioned and Ernie Andrus uh, he only shot 26 percent from the field so just a, a tick better than Bracey Wright I think <laughs> <laughs> well I think back then weren't they shooting with an actual rock and that's where you get the you get the you know pass me the rock thing i think i'm pretty sure I, i'm pretty sure that i wherever they played had an actual peach basket as well uh one thing i want to say uh while we're here i covered the 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 team for the ids the year that marco killingsworth was uh his one year at indiana and i think that a lot of people look back on him as kind of a goofy guy and kind of out of shape and all this stuff he had a great season i mean that team was really rough because of how talented they were and and probably didn't go as far as they should have with all the turmoil going on around the coaching situation and DJ White being injured. Um, but he had an epic post-player season, 17.8 points, 7.1 rebounds. That Duke game is one of the better individual performances I've seen out of a post-player at Indiana. Uh, 34 points, 10 rebounds, two blocks. And he was doing it against Sheldon Williams, who at the time was the reigning National Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, so I think that people, while he's not my pick for this, I think that, that, that people need to remember he was actually really good in his one year. And he was a guy who, who could have – you know, just left Auburn and gone pro and decided to transfer and only have one year at Indiana. Uh, so, you know, he was the leading field goal percentage. He, he led the SEC in field goal percentage his last year at Auburn instead of, you know, just going pro. He transferred to Indiana, uh, sat out an entire year and then played. So and that was the year things really cratered at the end, right? And Big Ten play, Davis, like, didn't show up for a game and all that stuff happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was sick and, you know, it was, you know, a mess. It was a mess. And, and uh, but, you know, he was consistent and consistently solid for that team. Uh, a couple other guys were too, Marshall Strickland and some others. So uh, it's it's worth noting that he was actually a lot better than I think people remember. And that fits in with Troy as well. I think Troy, as you said, will be a guy that, you know, God love him, good or bad. Troy made stuff happen. 
you know, and 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 uh, there were times uh, this happened in the Kentucky game. I was just watching highlights from that a couple weeks ago. Uh, the Kentucky game this year, there were times that, that offense was stunted and he just blitzed for the hoop and made a crazy layup that didn't look like anybody could make. You know, and there were things he could do on a basketball court that very, very few people can do. And I think that we'll, you know, we remember his gaffes and we remember his his screw ups and stuff. But that was a guy who could play basketball and and we'll remember him, you know, as you said, I think history will be kind to him. That said, out of these choices, gotta go with Ernie Andrus. Anytime you're a two-team team, two-time team MVP, two-time all Big Ten, third team all American, uh, you know, I don't care what your shooting percentage is, I don't care how many what your stats are. Uh, this is a guy who was one of the better basketball players in the conference and the nation. Uh, and, and you got to give them credit for that. And, and let's also remember that some of these guys before a certain point in time didn't get to play as freshmen. So they didn't get to rack up the numbers that other guys did long-term when you're looking at the seventies and sixties and before that. Uh, Cause I think that changed in the, in the mid seventies, whether or not you were allowed to play fresh play as a freshman. So uh, this is way, way back there. It's a long time ago. Of course, you can't even find grainy black and white footage of this guy, but he's a guy who accomplished a lot. And, you know, was a great representative for the university, went on to be a professional baseball player, uh, fought during World War II, all that stuff. You know, it's hard to argue against that. Uh, So I think that we're all we're all on the same page with this one as a sweep. Sounds to me like you might have just issued a challenge to Chris Williams of IU Artifacts to find grainy footage of Ernie Andrus somewhere, because if it's out there, he'll find it. I mean, just tossing it out there. (laughs) Not saying he's got to do it. I'm just saying I don't think he can. Yes. Well, this is this is fun. So apologies that we couldn't get all the way to 10, uh, but we'll just we'll break this up and we'll do it uh, in in five number chunks. I think it's fun. Uh, hopefully you all enjoy this uh, again. Uh, you know, Max Bielfeld for the number zero, Jared Jeffries for the number one, Christian Watford for the number two, Jay Edwards in probably our most uh, controversial heated debate at number three, Victor Oladipo at number four and Ernie Andrus at number five. Uh Fun episode, fellas. It's good to to get back together. Uh, we'll be doing episodes every other week until the season starts, and it's going to be here soon. We got uh, Hoosier Hysteria set for October 22nd, uh, so the season will be here before we know it, and we'll continue previewing it here on the Assembly Call. Any final thoughts, guys, before we sign off? I still no, say I DJ think- White. I still say DJ White was better than Jay Edwards. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The 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 the, the tribe has spoken. It's Jay Edwards. I, I will say, uh, Jeremy Gray did chime in on this one, and he voted for Jay Edwards. So I'm going to go with his vote as kind of a, a, a determining factor. What What does he know? What does he know? What does he have? <laughs> Literally everything. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's fair. fair. <laughs> no, nothing for me. It was, it was a fun exercise. It was an idea that I, I had and kind of wondered how it would go. And it was uh, just as much fun as I hoped it would be. So looking forward to get to some other some other numbers, not a lot of guys as we start to just kind of preview a little bit when we get through six through 10, uh, an amazingly low number of guys who have worn those numbers over the course of time, but some big names in IU basketball history uh, for sure will be part of that debate. And we'll uh, take another go at Will Sheehy. He'll have a chance to a second chance at, uh, at making it here. So uh, won't have the opportunity to make it at both numbers, but could uh, could find his way in there at number 10. We could have done this with Ralph Hamilton, too, who seemed to change his number every year. Uh... Yeah, depending on on what site you look at, it was, uh, yeah, finding some of the numbers in these older teams is a a challenging endeavor at best. Now, Andy, should we hold any suspense for the number 40, or should we just just wait till we get there to reveal who the greatest number 40 is in IU basketball history? Boy, that's a a tough call. I mean, 
Tijan is going to be right in that conversation until we'll, the we'll have to end. bring Chronic Hoosier on for that one to argue. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you guys for being here. Thanks everybody to everybody who watched us live. And if you listened on the podcast, thank you very much. Uh, remember, go to assemblycall.com/slash/join. Make sure you activate your free membership. Uh, and then, if you need a T-shirt, go to hoosierproud.com. We're really excited about our partnership with them this year. Use the promo code Assembly A S S E M B L Y. Same promo code that you can use at SeatGeek to get twenty dollars off. It'll get you fifteen percent off your shirts at Hoosier Proud. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Assembly Call. We will talk to you in a couple of weeks on our next brand new episode. Talk to you then. Schools, families, and government leaders are finally on alert over teen vaping. But before we can solve it, we need to understand it. One, the draw is flavors. 97% of kids who vape use flavors. Two, kids often don't know they're vaping nicotine, let alone a concentrated formula. Three, nicotine's addictive, and it's also a neurotoxin that can increase teen anxiety. Nicotine is brain poison, and flavor is the hook. Do something at flavorshookkids.org. Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California Lottery. Tonight's Mega Millions jackpot is over $250 million. Whew. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player client.